everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg. Your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me in marking International Women's Day. I'm Amanda Borchel Dan, and this week I'm speaking with the director of Jerusalem's Hadassah Mount Scopus Hospital, Dr. Tamar El Ram. Born in England, Tamar moved to Israel as a child with her family and lived in Jerusalem. A trained gynecologist, Tamar has served in leadership positions at the Hadassah Hospitals for the past decade. In November 2017, she became the director of Mount Scopus. We discussed the powerful female history behind the Hadassah Hospitals, important developments in women's health perspectives, and Tamar's own hard-won wisdom around what she calls awareness-based leadership. Much food for thought here. Enjoy. Tamara, thank you so much for joining me today, or actually I'm joining you in your office at Hadassah Mount Scopus Hospital, where you are the director. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this International Women's Day broadcast. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for joining me. Such a pleasure. First of all, can you give us just a bit of a history lesson about how women helped start Hadassah Mount Scopus Hospital? Uh, very interesting question, Amanda. Just by chance, well, probably not by chance, next to me on the table... On my, t- on my desk is the biography of an amazing woman whose name was Henrietta Sold. Henrietta Sold, who was born in the 19th century and grew up in the early 20th century in the States, was the one who actually established and founded the healthcare and the welfare systems in what was then Palestine and is now the state of Israel. And one of the amazing things she did was she founded a women's organization called Hadassah Women's Zionist Organization, um, of Hadassah and this amazing organization that now still has about hundreds of thousands of women who are part of it in the US and around the world established the medical the two hospitals of Hadassah in Jerusalem. What year was that? The first hospital which we're now sitting in Hadassah Mount Scopin was opened in 1938 but what's so fascinating about Henrietta is that wherever she stepped in her life she led change it started in the u.s that she used to stand uh, on the waterfront with her father who was a rabbi in baltimore and they used to welcome the jewish immigrants who came from europe to the u.s and welcome them into their home and help them learn english and find jobs and become part of the community and when she came to visit, visit palestine she traveled and she was shocked to see the state of the um, of people in the, who lived in the villages, whether they were Jews or Arabs or whoever lived in Palestine at that time. And she was shocked to see their, uh, their health state. So instead of just being shocked and going back to the US, she actually led change. It started with a few doctors, physicians and nurses who used to go around on donkeys, on mules to all the villages and help treat diseases that now we know are very easy to treat. For example, trachoma, which is an infectious disease that can cause blindness, but can be very easily treated just by a few drops in the eyes. So that's how she started. And another very uh, important thing that she did was she she started, she initiated the mother and baby health centers that actually exist in Israel till this day, where women who have given birth come with their babies for their kids to get health care from the day that they're born. So it's not only the Hadassah hospitals that she started, um, 
She also initiated youth villages for children from a less privileged backgrounds and later on for children and youth that came to, to, came to Palestine and then to Israel's refugees from Europe during the Holocaust and afterwards. So you asked me a question about how women changed the history uh, here and Henrietta's the answer. Quite the legacy, really. And specifically, this hospital, you said, was uh, built in 1938. Is that correct? Yes, 1938. It was opened. The stone setting for the hospital was in 1934. I've actually got some amazing old photos. Did you see Henrietta wearing a beautiful pinstriped uh, suit? Uh, and standing next to her, most of the photos is David Ben-Gurion, who eventually became the first prime minister of Israel. But there was then really the person who was leading uh, the Jewish, uh, the yet-to-be-born Jewish state. And him together with him together with a few more prominent leaders from the medical world and from others, they set the stone here in, 19, in the early 1930s. At the same time, our neighboring institution, the Hebrew University, which is just a few hundred meters up the hill from us on Mount Scopus, was also established. So there are actually two twin institutions that grew together here. It's, it's fascinating that women are so central in one of the foremost hospitals in the country until today, correct? Until today, history keeps on happening <laughs> because this amazing organization, HWZOA, it's still happening. They're still the owners of our hospital. And just next week, I'm very much looking forward to the, the national president, Ms. Rhoda Smola, who's going to finally land in Israel after two years of trying to come and being stopped by a wave of COVID every time. And they're amazing, prominent women leaders till this day. And the Hadassah Women's Organization is a not-for-profit, I would assume. Not-for-profit. And they collect funds from all sorts of women that you don't need to be a woman to to uh, donate, I would imagine. But it is still, until today, a strongly women-funded organization, correct? Definitely. I mean, we obviously accept funds from men, too. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but everything happens through the women. The women are members. And the more involved you are and the more prominent you are, the more advanced you are in the, the membership world. And it's still a very active movement all over the U.S. and around the world. Now, as somebody who has visited the hospital also as a patient, I can attest to the top-notch care and also the diversity of the staff and the patients being treated. Speak a little bit to that. Jerusalem is such an amazing city and it's been for more than 2,000 years one of the most important centers uh, in the world for the three monotheistic religions. And we see today, if you walk down the streets of Jerusalem, you'll see the diverse population of Jerusalem. The majority of people who live in Jerusalem are, are from Jewish background, but then we also have a very high population of Muslim people who live in, in, uh, in our city, and a minority of Christians too. And the same people who walk down the streets of Jerusalem also work in Hadassah Mount Scopus. And in both of the campuses of Hadassah, our sister campus, Hadassah in Kerem too, of course. And whenever I'm interviewed on this topic, I, I'm always very proud to say that at Hadassah, coexistence works. Because like you said, Amanda, the staff, doesn't matter what their background is and whatever their political views and, and what they carry at home and whatever grudges they carry, they work together here shoulder to shoulder. And actually Hadassah, the HMO, which is the Hadassah Medical Organization, was once nominated for the Nobel a peace Prize for that reason, because we're a bridge to peace, and, and it makes me very proud. Now, this is a broadcast for Women's Day, and you yourself began your medical training as a gynecologist. Why did you decide to enter this field of medicine? I decided at a relatively young age that I want to become a physician. Um, before I even realized why, only in retrospect do I realize why, and, and I've never been sorry. And I actually was one of those who entered the medical world or the medical um, medical school without knowing what kind of a doctor I want to be. 
and you know you go around the rounds in the different you experience the different departments and everything seemed very nice to me and eventually when I landed in OBGYN especially in the delivery room I felt I knew immediately that this is where I want to be it's interesting because at the same time I was pregnant with my oldest daughter who's now 24 she's the oldest of my five kids and it could be connected to the fact that I was experiencing childbearing at that same time and I connected a lot to what was happening there. There's so much passion in the obstetrics and gynecology and it's probably the place where you most experience the, um, the personal connection with your patients. And even though I'm now, I've been a director of this hospital and I've been in leadership roles for just over a decade already, I still practice medicine once a week in, in a clinic outside the hospital where I sit with my patients and I talk to them and our eyes are at the same level and I learn from them and, and I'm so moved by the experience and also humbled by the privilege to, to be in this situation. It's interesting to me to hear about you being pregnant when you started your rotation because when I recently gave birth here in this hospital. Right, I actually <laughs> forgot that. <laughs> five and a half months ago, many of the women, female physicians who treated me were also pregnant and one in fact gave birth around the same time that I did. And it was just astounding to see that most of the doctors in the maternity wing were women. Was that the case when you decided to become a gynecologist? So the answer to the question you asked is no, but but just to go back a second ago to what you said, um, I never checked it, but I, I tend to believe that women gynecologists have more kids on average than others because in my case, every time I used to come back from the three to six months uh, maternity leave, I used to see the tiny babies and say, oh my God, mine's so big already, I want to have another one. <laughs> so <laughs> there were a lot of pregnant uh, obstetricians and also don't forget that this is the childbearing age, right? True. But the answer again to your question is no there's actually been a massive change, a massive turnover in the percentage of female gynecologists, um, definitely in Israel, perhaps around the world. I think in order to be a, a good physician or a good caregiver, you have to be able to practice empathy. And in order to practice empathy, you really have to uh, practice your capability of imagining you're sitting in your patient's seat. And it's probably difficult to do that if you're of a different sex. I think when I sit with my patients in the clinic, a lot of my patients who when I started w uh, working with them 15 years ago, they were pregnant, uh, are now, for example, exper experiencing menopause. Um, and, and, and I experience their life changes with them. A lot of them share with me a lot of their, uh, whether it's experiences or challenges or difficulties, even, for example, with their spouses or with their kids, whatever, not necessarily speak to me about gynecology. So that's one of the reasons that I think being a woman gynecologist uh, is an advantage. And the second thing, second reason is that we're living in a very complicated world when it comes to Me Too and um, sexual harassment. The line between gynecological treatment or good and normal gynecological treatment and sexual harassment is very, very thin. And unfortunately, it's very, very easy to cross that line. Um, I've been saying this for many years that there's one thing that's lacking uh, in the gynecological education, and that is to talk about it. Because what you don't talk about, you're either ignoring or de facto it doesn't exist. And here, I think the gynecologists must be, edu part of their gynecological education must be talk about that fine line. And if you're a male or a female, could be even who's attracted to women, let's speak about how you're going to address that issue. You're going to be exposed to women's private parts for the rest of your career. How do you deal with it? What, hide, or what lies behind your choice of career? 
you have to speak about it and it's, it hasn't been spoken about. So for many years, I've been saying that I wouldn't be surprised if we speak about, speak about it and if women start speaking up, then we'll discover that there are more than a few male gynecologists who might have caused damage. A few years ago, a patient came into my clinic and I spoke to her and then I examined her. And when I'd finished the examination, she said to me, oh, that's it. And I said, to her, what do you mean that's it? And then she described to me the way she'd been examined by a male gynecologist a few years beforehand and who'd touched areas he hadn't had to, had to touch. And then I wanted to help her complain and I couldn't persuade her to, to complain about this doctor. It's very important for me to say not all male gynecologists practice sexual harassment. No, definitely not. But it's an issue that has to be addressed. So for the last six months to one year, to, to year more or less, uh, women have started speaking up and it's been in the media because of two terrible cases of gynecologists who have been uh, sexually harassing their patients for years. And one of them, one of those gynecologists that's now in the media is the same one that that patient told me about a few years ago. So again, not all male gynecologists do sexual harassment. Most don't. But it's an issue that must be dealt with. It's interesting that you're talking about the motivations of the doctors, the male doctors, especially going into this field. But what I've noticed in my, you know, I'm 46, in my many years of going to a gynecologist is there's been a change in procedure as well. My uh, gynecologist is male, but anytime he needs to do an internal exam, he always calls in the nurse and she's present. And this is something that's completely new to me. Yeah, uh, I agree. And, and I'm happy to hear he does that. And I don't know who he is, but I'm happy. And by law, um, in Israel, you have to have a sign up in the gynecological room that says any woman who asks for someone else to be with her in the in the room, is you have to allow that. So you don't have to bring in a, a female to, to be there, but any woman is allowed to bring in. Uh, a physician who brings the nurse in with him, assuming she's a female nurse, is proactively doing good. Excellent. You discussed also about accompanying your patients into menopause. And this is an area of medicine that uh, it seems to me at least that is growing, but has been neglected. Would you agree with that? Yes, I agree. And I agree to such an extent that there was a, a gynecologist who worked here in the, she's actually a woman, but she worked here in the, in our hospital and she had a special clinic for menopausal women. And then when eventually she retired, so the question came to my table, who's going to replace her? And I said, you know, you don't need a special clinic for menop menopause. Menopause should be basic medicine that every gynecologist should know how to address and maybe even general practitioners because, you know, 100% of women in the world are going to go through menopause. It's one of those things that's that common. There are very few things in the world that are that common and it's not very complicated. And the reason that this changed, the reason that this change has happened is because in the past, and I'm talking about perhaps, let's say, up, um, 20 to 30 years ago, and definitely beforehand, menopause was addressed as a disease. You know, I'm so, I want to apologize, but when you'll become about 50, you'll probably go through menopause and it's going to be terrible and we can't treat you, sorry. And then next stage was, yes, we can treat you, we can give you hormones because it's a disease. So if it's a disease, then let's treat it, right? Because it's bad. And then eventually there, there were a lot of research done about uh, around the world about the advantages and disadvantages of giving hormones. And, and eventually the realization came that, hey, maybe this isn't a disease. So in Hebrew, the word for menopause used to be gilablut, uh, which means the age where you become worn or redundant, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so now we don't use that word anymore. Unfortunately, some people still use it. Patients also still use that sometimes. And we call it gilamava, which means the age of transition. 
So what I say to my patients, every day is an age of transition. We're always in transition from one thing to another. Um, and this is just a certain age where your ovaries stop working. You stop ovulating. But that's really the only uh, significant change that happens physically. Everything else is symptoms, okay? Now, you might have symptoms that have nothing to do with the fact that your ovaries have stopped ovulating. You might not be getting along with your spouse as well as you used to. You might be going through what we call, you know, mid-age crisis. I don't like the word crisis, but just so that you know what I'm talking about. Because your kids are leaving home, whatever. So it's very easy to say, oh, it's because of the hormones. But everything in our life is because of our hormones. Because if we didn't have hormones, we wouldn't be human beings, right? So if we look at this age of transition, it's just another age of transition. And then I try to attend the symptoms, specific symptoms that a patient might be suffering from and she might not be suffering from anything so hey fine you know you don't have to do any change and she might actually be happy that she stopped getting her period so this is a whole new attitude i'm trying to to lead you know it's funny when i um before i realized i was pregnant at uh, 45 years old i looked up the symptoms for perimenopause and menopause and it kind of seemed like uh, coronavirus basically everything you can think of is a symptom of perimenopause yes and i sometimes say to my patients also that menopause or perimenopause is like adolescence in reverse so anything can happen right and it's it's, it's a special time in life but again um, turning 50 is a special time in life. I actually just read the biography of uh, Albert Einstein a few weeks ago. And there's a whole chapter there about when he turned 50, because he went through this, you know, okay, I'm 50, what now? In, so it's not because his, overly, his ovaries had stopped <laughs> ovulating, right? So it's an issue, um, but it's definitely not a disease. We are speaking with Dr. Tamara El-Ram, director of Jerusalem's Hadassah Mount Scopus Hospital. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back speaking with Dr. Tamar El-Ram to mark International Women's Day. As uh, a woman progresses, there's also this uh, notion of the wisdom that women gain. And as you said, you've uh, been in leadership roles for the past 10 years. And what kind of wisdom have you gained in the past 10 years in your leadership roles? Mm, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it's all about. And I'd like to say that I think... Or I'd like to wish for every woman who turns 50. I actually turned 50 last month. So this Mazzaro. is very relevant. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I can, now that I'm 50 plus, I'd like to wish for every woman who turns 50 that she won't be afraid to use her wisdom. Because 
I think turning 50 and, and um, or not only turning 50, but gaining experience should also give you authority. And if you've gained experience and haven't get, gained the feeling of authority, then maybe you don't believe in the experience you've gained. Or maybe you've been gaining the wrong experience for you. And this all leads to something that I'm um, dealing with a lot and thinking about a lot, what I call uh, awareness-based leadership. And it's not only leadership. I think I, I very much believe that we should all lead, live our life, whether it's as leaders or parents or spouses or friends or physicians in my case, uh, in the mode of awareness that means that we should find times to stop and ask ourselves questions. And the more experienced you are, it doesn't necessarily happen with age. It can happen at an earlier age, right? But the more experienced you are and the more wisdom you've collected, you've, you've collected in your life, then you should be more experienced also in finding moments when you can ask yourself these questions. And if I go back to awareness-based leadership, so what I mean is you have to reach the stage as a leader where you could ask yourself, what are the values that lead me in this specific situation that I'm leading now? Um, what are the values that the people that the people with me in the room are bringing with them? What are the feelings that I'm bringing with me into this specific challenge or decision that I have to make? And, and now is the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is speak about what you're feeling, okay? And and that's the the leap that I that I I want to wish that leaders will deal with and and, and practice, okay? So what I do is if, I, if I'm sitting for, with people whom I work with and, and I'm experiencing a situation as a leader, as, as a director of this hospital, I'll say to them, so let's talk about this situation, how we're going to lead it. What are we feeling? What are we going to do with what we're feeling? And how is this going to help us lead this hospital in this specific situation? It sounds easy. It takes a lot of practice. Um, and, and I think if to go back to the issue of wisdom, it takes a lot of humility, okay, to, to not be afraid to not be afraid um, to do this. And it's only if, again, if you believe in the experience that you've gained, will you develop enough courage, leadership courage is in, in my eyes, very, very important, to ask these questions. That a lot of people will be very afraid to ask, definitely of themselves, but even more of the people around them. And um, I've been practicing this, or become I've become aware of the fact that I've become practicing this, so I've decided to practice it more and speak about it, both... In, in my uh, close proximity, I'm with people around the world and this, hey, we're talking about this and people there in India are listening to me talk about this. And, and this can change the world of leadership. Let's break it down a little bit. It sounds slightly counterintuitive for a leader to be focusing on feelings versus facts and negating all feelings and becoming cold and, and completely dispassionate. But you're saying no, embrace the feelings. Exactly. Embrace your values and embrace your feelings and be aware with them and control them, okay? You can't control them if you're not aware of them. They'll come out exactly when you don't want them to come and speak about them and deal with them, even with people around you. I agree with you, Amanda. It sounds counterintuitive. It doesn't sound counterintuitive. It sounds counter of what we're used to seeing amongst leaders, okay? Correct. Uh, my dream is to reach a situation where this will be taught in, where, in, in leadership courses to begin with and not only the technicalities of leadership and, and management, but let's talk about our values and the feelings that we're, uh, we're going to experience when we become leaders and what we're going to do about them. And what I want to say is, is that I'm already wise enough, right, go to go back to this, your wisdom, to say that 
once you practice the awareness-based leadership and you're humble enough and courageous enough to practice it, that everything else works like magic. We've been changing and um, developing work processes here. We open new services. We build new buildings. We change people's lives. Um, and, and things seem to be much easier when we're used to talking about everything. Nothing is taboo. And um, it, it, it's a very special experience because eventually it becomes practically effortless. Well, maybe not practically effortless, but practice makes it easy because nothing's taboo. And then you're talking about everything and you're practicing it together with the leaders that you choose around you. So I'd like to give an example from a world that's common, that's, uh, common to all of us now, COVID, right? So we've all been experiencing this very complex challenge of dealing with COVID and I woke up uh, in the middle of the night about two years ago and said, oh my God, there's this terrible uh, disease that might, I don't know, maybe it's going to kill all of us and I'm the head of a hospital. <laughs> I'm at the front of this. No pressure. So I woke up in the middle of the night with this scary feeling and then I had to come to work and continue. So I came to work the next morning and I sat with my management, there's six of us, and the first thing I said was, I want you to know, I woke up in the middle of the night <laughs> with a panic attack because here we are at the front of this terrible disease. We have to fight this pandemic and let's talk about how we're going to do this. And, and, and it's an issue and we have 1,200 workers in our hospital and we have to help them feel secure and they're all in panics and we're the leaders. How are we going to do this? What are we feeling? And the first thing I felt in the room was relief. And perhaps intuitively you would think if your leader's saying, hey, I had a panic in, panic attack in the middle of the night, they'll say, oh my God, if my leader's had a panic attack, what well, I'm supposed to experience. But the, on the contrary, it made people feel safe because I first shared my feelings and I said, right, how are we going to deal with this? And after the first wave of COVID, which unfortunately up to now was the first of fifth and, and hopefully the last, we sat together and we actually brought someone from outside the hospital who helped us analyze what we'd been doing and how we'd been feeling and how we'd been leading what we did wrong what we could do better in if there were another pandemic and hey when the second wave came we were already better when I mean better we felt more secure and we felt safer because we'd been speaking about this from day one so I think that's uh, an example of what I mean when I mean Amer uh, awareness-based leadership and um, do not think this means I do not have authority in my hospital because I share my feelings I think on the contrary when I started filling leadership roles I realized quite quickly something that can be very scary. Right? I had people walk into my room or people whom I'd asked to come for meetings. And then my secretary would say they want to know what it's about. They're, you know, uh, apprehensive and anxiety, whatever. And I say, hey, you know, it's just me. Tamar, you know me, you know, it's just me. I'm just, I just want to speak to you. And I very quickly realized that just the fact that I'm sitting on this big chair with this big title gives me authority. Um, perhaps you could use the scary word power and it's very very easy to misuse this power and um, and if, if any of you want to become a leader or intend, intend you know see someone around you is becoming a leader uh, then from day one remember that you have authority just by the fact that you have the title and um, if you need to use that title in order to practice your authority then you're doing something wrong okay so eventually or quite quickly what I started doing when people came into my room you know all dressed up and, I, and, and in anxiety I'd say hey 
I understand you're anxious because you're meeting me and I'm director of the hospital. Do not be anxious. Okay, so already I addressed their feelings and they already feel better. Um, so, so that's something about authority and leadership and how careful we have to be. Your willingness to share your feelings uh, is perhaps uh, a common, shall we say, female trait. But I wonder if this awareness-based leadership can work in a male-dominated world. You are in a male-dominated world, but I wonder if males who dominate the world can also practice this. So I think that's a very good question. And, and my plans are, since I already feel that I have experience, authority and courage and wisdom, then I can start talking about these things, right? If you'd speak to me a year ago, I wouldn't even be aware enough of the fact that I'm practicing. It took me time to realize how I was practicing my leadership. And I want to believe that we can create change. And yes, Amanda, I think that amongst the average male leader, it will be more difficult. Because, you know, leave alone speaking about your feelings. Let's talk about the first stage, being aware of your feelings and, and being able to say to yourself, this is what I'm experiencing, this is what I'm feeling, and not being afraid, don't, not letting that uh, scare you. Um, and it can be very scary sometimes if as a leader you suddenly feel, if you if you you know look at yourself and you say, I'm feeling insecurity, I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling afraid. Oh my God, maybe I shouldn't be a leader. No, <laughs> on the contrary, perhaps you should be, but let's deal with what you're feeling. So yeah, I think it become can become very complicated in a male dominant world. Probably what's different from awareness-based leadership is ego-based leadership. But I'd like to go a few steps back and say that there are different kind of people in the world, okay? And at the end of the day, there's something uh, or, or like a, an energetic pole, perhaps I could say, that uh, that we follow in whatever we do in life, okay? So if someone's pole is awareness, like I said before, that awareness is not only in leadership. If you, if you don't practice uh, being in awareness with your kids and with your spouse and with your friends and wherever you are, then it won't work. You won't, won't be able to be such kind of a leader. So if someone's energetic pole is their ego, which means um, that this, this is a very big title and I want to do it, um, you know, I'm going to have lots of people who look up to me when I sit on this chair, um, it's fine. That's a different kind of person, not only a different kind of leader. And someone who's led by their ego or by power for example power and ego aren't necessarily the same thing okay um, by power it can be someone who's led by how much money they have how much land they own how many people they're in charge of that's a different kind of person who will make a different kind of leader and it might be practically it's probably practically impossible to take someone whose energetic pole is their ego or their power and turn them into an awareness-based person not to mention a leader but um, I believe that some people out there um, might think that they're ego-led, but if, if you start talking to them about being aware, they might be able to become aware of the fact that they're ego-led and say, hey, you know, I'm being led by something that I don't necessarily believe in, or if I do believe in it, fine, then I'm not going to practice awareness-based leadership. It's a lot to digest, and we'll let it sit with our listeners at this point. Now, we began our conversation talking about the women who built the hospital in 1938. Let's end with talking about the plans for the future for more building of the hospital. Yeah, let's get back to some practical stuff. Huh? <laughs> a little grounded, building yeah, ground. Okay, thank you, Amanda, for reminding me to put my feet back on the ground. I love the clouds, and it's good to be back. Thanks. I'd like to give just a brief history of what happened here since 1938. 
So after this hospital was opened, it was really the first general hospital to open in this part of the world then. Unfortunately, in 1948, just a month before the state of Israel was established, there was a terrible massacre that occurred just down the road from here. Um, a convoy of ambulances and buses and private cars that was on their way to the hospital and the university was attacked uh, um, by Arab terrorists and 78 people were massacred. And at that time, the leadership, both of HWZ away and of the hospitals and the leadership and Ben-Gurion himself realized that this place was too dangerous and and it was abandoned. It was practically abandoned from when the, the state of Israel was established in May 1948 till 1967 when the city of Jerusalem was reunited. And so at the beginning of the, after 1967, the place was renovated and reopened in the mid 70s more or less the same size that it had been in the 1940s, a little bit bigger, there were a few departments added and the, the hospital was expanded a little bit. And since 19, the 1970s till about five years ago, a bit more, the place practically froze in time. And what's fascinating about the city of Jerusalem is that it's one of the fastest growing modern capitals in the world. And, the, and there are now over 1.2 million inhabitants in Greater Jerusalem. And Hadassah Mount Scopus is the only hospital in the northeast part of Jerusalem. So really serving over half of that population of 1.2 million people. So obviously it's a hospital that was built in the 1930s and renovated in the 1970s isn't big enough to, to give those services. So this is the vision that we've been talking about. The leadership of HWZON, HMO, have been talking about this vision for the last maybe five to ten years. And now the dream's coming true because we've got a beautiful plan for the expansion of this campus. And just about a month ago, the authorities, both the land authorities, the Ministry of Health and the, and the uh, Municipality of Jerusalem, and all the regulatory officials gave their stamp for these plans. Uh, so the campus is now only about 30% built, but if um, in the next decade, we're going to more than double the number of beds at Adassa Mount Scopus. And if you come and visit us now, you'll see there's a beautiful, very big building being built at the entrance to our campus. It's going to be the new Gandel Rehabilitation Center. Adasamat Scopus is the only place in Greater Jerusalem where we have a rehabilitation department. Now it's only a department, but uh, in the mid middle of 2023, it's go we're going to reopen the biggest rehabilitation center in Israel. And that's going to be just the first of the new buildings because we're planning now a 14-story, uh, really new inpatient tower, a new emergency room, and a lot of very exciting things happening at Mount Scopus. And it's my privilege to be here now. So I'll have to come visit you again in 10 years and we'll see how it all panned out. When your grandchildren are born. Foot, foot, foot. Tamar, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you to all those listeners abroad. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel, and thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.